Good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word in front of you, you can be turning to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll be spending most of our time not only in that spot, but in the epistles to the Corinthians there, 1 and 2 Corinthians. It's great to see you this morning. We're grateful that you are here. Uh, as I am dealing with a little bit of congestion already here in the wintertime, I hear others who are around this time who are coughing and, and uh, congested in that way, so I ask for your patience. I hope it doesn't last the whole winter, but uh, dealing with a little bit of that that started uh, here this week, and so I, I beg your patience as I try to try to get through the, the speaking part today. Hopefully it won't be too bad. We hope that you had a good week and a good time maybe with your family. We enjoyed visiting with my folks. Miss being here on Wednesday night. Uh, for the singing time, but uh, enjoy getting to see my folks and visit with uh, the church out there. And we're just thankful that you're here this day as we worship together. I would just make one note of last week we began our new Sunday routine of having class at 9.30 and then worship at 10.30, 10.25, 10.30, and then again at 1.30. We had a really good day, had uh, a lot of uh, folks who stayed and then a lot of folks who, who came back. And I know that everybody always gives preachers a hard time, Brother Bill, about preacher math. Um, but I, I'm going to peel back the curtain a little bit, and I'll show you how it works, all right? So according to the board, last week, I think we had 99 for our AM service, which was a great number, and we had 76 for our second service, our afternoon service. Now, the Isoms weren't here. Of course, Miss Catherine is still, still in a lot of pain and not able to be with us, and we're sad about that. But they were a couple of the folks, along with Faye and, and uh, Buford and others, who asked about having maybe an earlier service because of the, the weather and because of the, the time change and the darkness. So they would have made two. So if we take 99 and we turn it to 101, now we're over 100, right? And then if we, they usually watch. So if we take 76, we turn it into 78. Well, 78, is, is 78 out of 100 is we had a 78% return rate. But it's actually a little higher than that, right, because it's 101. And since we're at 78 or a little above, we'll just round it up to 80. So there you go. That's preacher math right there. 80% return rate last week for our afternoon service. And that's how you get a lot bigger numbers when it comes to preachers counting than you usually have. But we're thankful for those who were here. We're thankful for those who stayed, and we hope that, that will be something that you'll continue to do with us as we look forward to our afternoon time. We had a great crowd and a great period of study last week, and we look forward to the rest of the day today as well. If you know much about the history of the Bible or the history of the, uh, really the history of the world, I guess, when you look at your Bible, often in the back, you'll see a series of maps that will show you some of the way that the world once looked. And we know several cities that go by those kinds of names, uh, cities who carry names with it, that names that we don't even hear about much anymore, um, but they're names that we are familiar with, and one of those certainly is the city of Corinth. Chase, I'm not getting it to go forward there. Maybe you have to do it for me or try to get it, having a little more trouble there. When we think about the city of Corinth, Corinth was one, and our ladies have had a chance to look at this on our Wednesday night Bible class, the one that they just finished up. They talked a lot about some of these different cities, and one in particular, Corinth here, and I tried to draw a little bit of an arrow maybe that you could see. This is a current map, of course, of the world today. We're familiar that the middle of the map looks a lot like what we call the Middle East or what we refer to as the Bible lands, maybe. The, the period of, or the place of lands and of countries in which the world pretty much began and most people were congregated for a long period of time. There along the coast and along that area, what is now Israel and Syria and Iraq and Turkey and those kinds of places, and then certainly down into Egypt. 
And we know a lot about Egypt from the Old Testament. Well, there's a little island, and Corinth was not the island, but a place on the island there at the tip of that red arrow on that map. And Corinth was a place that was well-known, well-traveled, but it was also a place in which Satan had long had a stronghold upon in the city of Corinth. It was, we might even say, his playground, his funhouse, if you will, because of all the many sins that went along that went along and were practiced there in the city of Corinth. As the, the Roman Empire came along, there was probably uh, not, any, not any city that was any worse, certainly, than the city of Corinth. And in fact, of a world that was filled with paganism and immorality, Corinth became a name that could be used uh, to describe certain things. And one of those things was this idea of the, uh, that you might Corinthianize someone or something. That's how bad that it was. To be called a Corinthian woman would be one of those names or phrases that would be used to describe someone who was worked as a, a prostitute. But that was, was how bad Corinth was and the many sins that they participated in. And that's the folks that Paul is trying to write to as he's trying to encourage them with these epistles. But we won't forget, because we're going to come back to it at the end of the lesson, but Corinth was a place where he had worked. You see, Paul didn't just pick out a map like that and throw a dart at it and say, well, I'll write a letter to them, or I'll just pick out this place. He had been there. He had worked with these folks, and now he's going to write to encourage them, but he knows that he's writing to people who are going to struggle. They certainly have struggled, and that deals with the title of the lesson. If you have your bulletin in front of you that we're going to talk about this morning, we're going to talk about some things that they had done, and such were some of you. We're going to look at three things in particular this morning, three different types of work, if you, if you will, that took place here, and then the lesson will be yours. The first that we're going to talk about, of course, is their history, and that is the history with Satan, with the devil and the work that he did. And the devil's work, we might sum it up by saying, was delusion. He had deceived these Corinthians. He had deceived them to exchange their soul to exchange the freedom that is found in Christ for the passing pleasure of sin. We know when we think about Moses there in Egypt, and we think about that he could, he was, or he could have enjoyed, maybe did for a short season, the passing pleasure of sin there with the Egyptians, but he chose rather to suffer with the people of God. That's a difficult choice that most people, and even very often us as Christians, don't want to choose. Or we'll just continue to choose the easy way out, which is the passing pleasure of sin. The city's sins were many. But what we want to do in this particular section of the lesson is focus in on three particular areas in which Satan deluded these people. He deceived them and, and wanted them or encouraged them. And many of them did, at least for a time, participate in some major types of sins. The first that we'll talk about is sacred sins. Now we didn't take time to read it, but if you have your Bible still open there to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 are usually grouped together, and in verses 9 and 10 you will see this particular list. Now we're going to group it or categorize it into a broader set of categories, but Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Sounds to me like that's a bit of a rhetorical question, right? We preachers, we speakers use that sometimes as a means of teaching people or asking questions. It's a question that you should know the answer to already. And Paul would know from spending time with them and having taught them the truth that here they are and they should know the answer to that. 
Because it's even phrased, do you not know? With the implied answer being, well, absolutely you do. We've talked about this already, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, how could we categorize these? Well, number one, we might call one section sacred sins. And by that, we would say, of course, he lists in the the list here in verse number nine, idolaters or idolatry. Idolatry is the preeminent insult to God. We talked about this, I guess it may have been in 2020. We preached a series of lessons on Elijah at Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And we talked about the fact that we sometimes make many things in our lives idols. And that idolatry is simply putting anything in the place of God. Idolatry dishonors his name. It dethrones his majesty. And it brings him down to the level of an object and places him even alongside the beast, the things of this earth that he made. And he is a jealous God. I told you we're going to be in the books of the epistles to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 2, Paul would say, writing of course of God, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. What's he speaking of is he says, I am jealous for you, Paul, with a godly jealousy. He's saying, well, with the, the jealousy that has to do with God, God would be a jealous God. Because he's jealous of anything that we put in the place of him. Paul's inserting idolaters here. If you look at your list in verse number 9, he inserts idolaters among some of the other sins that are listed there. And so some people read this and they say, well, that doesn't make sense. How is it that he begins by talking about fornicators and then jumps to idol- or adulterers and in the middle he throws idolaters? Well, if you know anything about Corinth, and again, our ladies have had a chance to study it some, maybe you have before, but in this Gentile world, idolatry was mixed with immorality. Idolatry was spiritual to them. Religion was carnal. Fornication, which we'll come to in a minute, was, was worship. The, the temples were brothels. This, this idea of immorality and idolatry was intermixed. We think about Aphrodite. We think about Apollo, these gods, little g gods, and these temples that they had, which were mainly used as places to fulfill sexual desires. And so, yes, idolatry is one thing, but yes, it's also mixed in with the immorality that they were partaking in almost constantly. You know from Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 3 that the first command, as we count them, of the Ten Commandments reads, You shall have no other gods before me. That is how important idolatry is to God or that we do not practice idolatry. Although that that designation, that command was given thousands of years ago, there has never, understand me clearly, there has never been a generation where men did not worship idols. Because we go all the way back there to Exodus chapter 20 and God is there on the mountain and they're receiving the Ten Commandments and there is idolatry going on basically right behind him right next to him and what happens today and all through time is we may be a little more separated so to speak but we are still practicing idolatry it may not be taking our gold and literally putting them in a fire and melting them down and making a golden calf but we still put things in the place of God Satan still deceives us into committing this sacred sin Israel was tempted with Baal And all throughout time, there were many other, again, little g gods who people worshipped. 
that featured gluttony, drunkenness, and prostitution. You think about even the Hindu religion that has flourished for, for again, thousands of years that believe in the reincarnation as if people are reincarnated as animals. And in India alone, there has been believed to have been some 200 million sacred cows. And as people, even in India, are starving for food, they're protecting these so-called cows when a cow could, of course, feed many people and maybe take care of some of the hunger problems, but they're protecting these cows for idolatry's sake. Idolatry often takes less obvious forms, and that's where we get into what we, follow into what we fall into today. Augustine said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Idolatry is worshipping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Someone once said, today's idols are in self rather than on the shelf. America's idols are the gods of silver and sex and our own stomachs. Pleasure, possessions, and positions. Football, Facebook, and family. All of these things can be grouped together when we put it above serving God or in the place of God. It becomes a problem and it becomes an idol. One of the groups of sins or types of sins that's listed here is the sacred sins. We see secondly, as you feel in your outline, that Paul does talk about some of the sexual sins. You know, there are a few places in the world that we think of today, places like San Francisco or Las Vegas or even internationally, Amsterdam and Rio de Janeiro and other places. Few of those places have been as sexually lax as Corinth was. In a permissive society where it took much to get noticed, Corinth stood out like a red light district on a dark night. You know, their philosophy seemed to be sex is a normal physical function, so why not do as you please? But we know the truth to be that God created sex when he made male and female. Therefore, he has the right to tell humans how to use his particular gift that he has given us. Three things that are listed here, we'll touch on them just very briefly. Three things that are listed. Number one, we might say fornication. And I didn't mention this, I, I usually do in my lessons, but depending on the version that you're looking at, you may see some different words that are used here. But he says, first of all, at least in the New King James, fornicators. Of course, fornication is a general word used for any sexual intercourse not between husband and wife. It makes someone spiritually unclean. We think about many passages that discuss that, even Matthew chapter 15, verses 19 and 20. And when we see it bears true even in society today. You see, most of society wants to promote that living this type of open lifestyle, if you will, makes a person feel good. It allows a person to be prepared for things that are going to come later in life. But history and even statistics, studies sometimes show us different. Of women whose first relationship, first uh, sexual relationship is after age 21, only 16% have a problem with cheating later. Of those who have sex earlier, up to 50% cheat later. The Journal of Marriage and Family reported that couples who live together before marriage are less satisfied when they marry and more likely to split up during rocky times. 
Fornication, a general word for any intercourse not between husband and wife. Number two, the second thing listed here you might see is adultery. Adultery deals, with, of course, with a sexual relationship that happens between someone who, with someone other than your spouse. We often say simply that it is cheating on a spouse with either a married person or a single person. Do you recall from, again, Exodus chapter 20, verses 14 and 17, that two of the Ten Commandments deal with this. Adultery, Exodus 20, verse 14, and also in verse 17, there, there it talks about coveting a neighbor's wife. Two of the Ten Commandments help protect marriage. And of course, under that old law, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse number 10, adultery's punishment was death. Adultery does not dissolve a marriage immediately, if you will, but it can and is the only reason God allows for remarriage. And Christians who are living, to, who are living in an evil society must be careful. We must be careful to not let our guard down because the world promotes these things like living together or uh, cheating on spouses and it's common and it's even socially acceptable sometimes but as Christians we must avoid practicing those things certainly but then promoting them as well the third thing that's mentioned here very quickly under this idea or group of sexual sins is of course homosexuality and again depending on the version you're using you may see different words that are used here effeminate or abusers of themselves with mankind which refers simply to the sexual acts between two people of the same gender. And when we think about even the way that words are used today, sometimes words like effeminate are misused today. Unfortunately for us, we don't have time to go into all of these things. Uh, I would tell you that I've been thinking about an idea or a lesson along the ideas of, of gender and the things that are going on in our world today that we may get to uh, by the end of the year or the first of next year. I'll give you a little bit of warning as that's a bit of a sensitive subject, but certainly something that we need to understand and know what the Bible has to say as Christians who in, live in a world where it's all around us. But all of these words combined, or even especially these words, cover the sexual conduct, uh, the misconduct that occurs between man and woman, and even those of the same gender. Thus, we see here that the New Testament, Paul writing by inspiration, condemns every conceivable type of either same-sex intercourse and even those that are outside the bonds of marriage. Not only does he talk about sacred and sexual sins, but thirdly here, Paul's going to touch on social sins. He turns to the mistreatment sometimes of others. What about dishonesty or greed? Dishonesty or covetousness, as you may see there. Covetousness is an excessive desire for what, for what one may not legitimately have. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. And you have such a desire that you're willing to do almost anything. Think about this. Theft, which we'll usually put over here theft, where you actually take something, and covetousness and even extortion are connected. Covetousness is the, is the bud. Covetousness is the bud, extortion the blossom, and theft the fruit. Think about the connection between these things. Even with our mind, you remember in Matthew chapter 5 in verse number 28, Jesus would talk about this in the Sermon on the Mount that lust one who lusts after someone, looks at another person in such a way to lust after them, commits mental adultery, we might say. 
And so one who so one person who covets as well, a person who covets commits mental theft. As we think about there in Matthew chapter 5. And very often nothing but the lack of opportunity and the fear of consequences keeps us from going further with that. Not much, but sometimes the opportunity and the fear of consequences. But what happens when we find ourselves with an opportunity? Maybe no one's looking. And maybe we know that if no one's looking and we're not caught, there's no consequences. Then we find ourselves being a thief and taking things that don't belong to us. Extortion, even this on this list here, again, depending on the version, refers to those who would be swindlers or maybe nonviolent crimes such as uh, you know, kickbacks or bribery, security fraud or embezzlement, all these different things, uh, insurance fraud or check or credit card fraud that people get involved in, things that are dishonest, thing that are, things that are covetous. When we talk about this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we also see drunkards are mentioned here. Alcohol and drugs have done more to ruin our society very often than anything the devil could, can dream up. Or at least as he encourages us through his ploys to partake in those kinds of things, it's destroyed families and it's destroyed our society. Alcohol will steal health. It will steal friends, finances, self-respect, the ability to resist sin, the conscience, and yes, even the hope of heaven. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 and 30. Those who, as it says, linger long at wine have woe and sorrow, contentions, babblings, wounds, and redness of eyes. Since drunkenness is a, is a process and, and not a result, total abstinence is essential. When we think about Paul encouraging them not to partake in these things, he's telling them that it can be addictive. You know, there's a Japanese proverb that says, first the man takes the drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes the man. And of course, a Bible proverb, Proverbs chapter 20 and verse number 1, wine is a mocker. When we think about these social sins, there are many that cause trouble for us, including dishonesty and covetousness and drunkards. But what even about foul language that is mentioned here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Reveling, reviling that's mentioned here rever refers to slander, verbal abuse, or foul language. Foul lips very often reveal a foul heart. And so we have to be careful with all of these things. And as I've mentioned to you before, I feel that very often we will take these lists that Paul gives and we'll separate some things out. We say, well, I'm not a murderer, you know, or I've never practiced homosexuality, or I've never actually stolen anything. And we'll categorize things and say, well, I'm not doing that. But notice what Paul says here consumes basically everything. Because if the Ten Commandments were still in effect today, and they're not because Jesus died on the cross and did away with the old law. But think about this. If the Ten Commandments were still in effect, the Corinthians would have gone down the list, breaking them one by one. As idolaters, they broke the first, the second, and the third. As adulterers, they broke the seventh. As thieves, they broke the eighth. As revilers, they broke the ninth. As covetous, they broke the the tenth, and as drunkards, they likely broke the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth. See, here's the question 
and the idea that comes with the title of our lesson. How much is too much? How far is too far? Where are you or where were you at one point? Because you see, that is the devil's work. The devil's work is delusion. He deceives us into thinking that so many of these things are good or they're okay. But let's notice, secondly, the convert's work. Because the convert's work is going to deal with repentance. The convert's work, our work, as we come into this, is repentance. As we said before, Paul had been in this place with these people. He had, we might say, rescued them from their sin, and they had one primary duty. As those who had been called out of darkness into the light, they had one primary duty, and that was to stop sinning, to cease the unrighteousness, to stop what they were doing in sin, and to change their lives. And this is what Scripture calls repentance. This is what scripture calls repentance. Repentance is changing sinful behavior because of godly sorrow. Our brother Jerry talked about this in our class just a a few moments ago here, excuse me, in the auditorium, as we thought about David and Bathsheba and the sin that was committed there and the things that happened. As David is sorry for what he had done, he says that he sinned against the Lord. And he doesn't just say, oh, you know, my bad, I'm I'm just going to, I really feel bad about that but I'm not going to change anything, or I'll do it again. You see, we often say that it's a changing of the mind that leads to a changing of the life, or a change of the mind that leads to a change in action. That's what repentance is. We talked recently about Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 12, that Christians must work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. We have that godly sorrow, but it doesn't just make us feel bad. Well, man, I really hate that I did that. But it causes us to change our lives. So can sinners change? You know, the Bible teaches that humans can control moral behavior. How do we know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 11. Paul says, such were some of you. Can sinners change? Well, the Corinthians did. And in the Greek, as you may see in your Bible, depending on the version, the verb occurs in each phrase. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Paul compiles here in this particular list possibly the worst list of sinners in the New Testament. And he says, that's what you used to be. That's what you used to be. But you have changed. You know, the command to repent implies the possibility of change. God does not require the impossible of us. We know that. So if he wants us to change, then it is possible. We are to be, become new people in Christ. We are transformed into his image. We have to make a change. Is it possible that sometimes people get in this water back here and they go down into it and they come out and all they've done is gotten wet? Well, certainly that's, that can be the case. You know, repentance is something that's done sort of internally, but then we do see the fruits of repentance as people change. And someone can certainly walk in the door even this morning and get wet and walk back out and never change a thing and they have not truly repented. We think, of course, from Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son who can leave the pig pen, travel the way of penitence, 
arrive back at his father's house and be wearing new, clue, new clothes and new shoes and a new ring and eating calf by nightfall. All in the same day because he's willing to make a change. The command to repent, though, also implies the responsibility to change. Paul calls this process the renewing of your mind. Take a, take a case in point here. Let's think about something we've already talked about for just a moment. What about homosexuality? Can homosexuals change? Are this, is this something that people are born with, their orientation, or is it a learned behavior? Is it genetic, like being bald or being left-handed or extroverted or something like that? Or is it a matter of choice? You know, people have talked about this for a long time, about the makeup of brains and genes and those kinds of things. But when we think about what God has to say here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, by the Holy Spirit, by the pen of the Apostle Paul, such were some of you. Which shows that that feeling, that idea, practicing that is reversible. Paul is saying to some of those in the Corinthian church that they were formerly those who practice homosexuality. Many people today have exchanged practicing promiscuous homosexuality for married heterosexuality. Is it hard? Is it difficult? Is it a deeper uh, conversation that needs to be had? Yes. But can sinners change? Well, the answer is yes, but let's talk about a few other things here this, this morning before we conclude the lesson. Can sinners change? Yes, they can. But number one, we might notice that it's in within limits. Within limits, as you're filling out, Chase, you may have to go forward for me there. They can change, sinners can change, they did change, but first of all, within limits. If one does not develop heterosexual desire and cease homosexual interest, you know, God does not require marriage to the opposite sex. In some cases, it's better to remain single, as Paul is going to talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and even in chapter 9. Some people can remain celibate and learn to control their, th those feelings or those emotions, their sexual desire. Just as sometimes those have to do maybe uh, who have been divorced. And when we think about God drawing these lines, God draws the line at those who practice sin and not at those who are just tempted to sin. God draws the line at those who practice sin, not those who are tempted to sin. Can sinners change? Yes, First of all, within limits. It's not easy, but it can be done. Number two, we would notice that can sinners change? Well, yes, but over time. You know, the process begins at conversion, and it continues throughout life. We talk about getting somebody wet. Somebody can get wet and walk right out that door and not change. But here's the other thing. We don't expect someone to come up out of the water and be perfect and walk out those doors and never have a problem again. Can sinners change? Yes, the process begins at conversion when you come in contact with the blood of Christ. But it also continues over time. It's not something that's done just once. Number three, we might notice that can sinners change? Well, yes, but with the right help. With the right help. Abstaining from immorality requires avoiding those who are practicing sin. Some people come in and they get wet and they go right back out and they go back to the same people that they knew once before. The same habits that they were doing, the folks that they were around. We cannot expect to change if we will not avoid those who are living immoral, sinful lives. I know it's hard and once again there's that idea of over time we have to change things. But in many cases 
We should go to maybe Christian counseling. Maybe we should find a closer connection with our elders or other strong Christians. Those kinds of things can help us. We have to find the right help if we want to change. And then number four, can a sinner change? Well, yes, if one wants to badly enough. To qualify for the kingdom entry. That's the question here, right? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We might reverse it around and say, who's going to enter the kingdom of God? How do we qualify for that? Well, to qualify for kingdom entry, each person must remain determined not to defile themselves. Think about these Corinthians. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. It's easy to look back thousands of years and say, you know, it, they didn't have it that bad. Read this list again. Paul says they were doing those things. They weren't perfect people. And they weren't even like many of us. Many of us became Christians when we were younger people. We may not have lived a life of deep sin. Now, some of you may have. Some of you may become a Christian later in life. Maybe you, you went through many of these things. But they had. He says you were doing these things. But now you're washed, you're sanctified, and you're justified. Anyone who refuses to put self to death, allowing Christ to reign in him, is unworthy of the kingdom. We cannot continue in that way. We have to want it badly enough. We've seen the devil's work. We've seen the convert's work. But let's talk very finally here about the Savior's work. The Savior's work, of course, is salvation. God can make the greatest saints out of the worst sinners. That's what happens to those who are truly converted and work at it and practice doing what's right. Many people look at the church building, they say, I can't go there, I'm not good enough. Some of the strongest Christians have been those who were living in the deepest sin. It's the Savior's work. The great physician on earth, while he was here, Jesus never turned away a sick person who came for treatment. And in all of those years that he lived here and worked, and even going forward, he has never found a sin sickness that he cannot heal. Your case will not stump him. God can take the people described in Corinth and in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, and he can make them the people who are described in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse number 11, washed, sanctified, justified. He does it all the time. And so very often we simply shortchange him by saying, well, it's too much. I'm too bad. God can't do anything for me. And we allow ourselves to be deceived into thinking that we can't do anything. And there's nothing that we can do to help ourselves. Go with me in your Bible very quickly. Last passage, Acts chapter 18. <coughs> Acts chapter 18. Paul, put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. Do you think that when he walked in the city of Corinth, he felt like he had met his match? Do you think that in Acts chapter 18, it begins there in verse number 1, that when Paul walked into Corinth and he saw all the sin that was going on, he had just a moment where he wanted to say, Hey, you know what? I'm good. I'm going to go to the next town. You guys just do your best. You know, just try, try, try as hard as you can. He had a mountain to climb with the Corinthians. So much so that in verse number 9, of first, or excuse me, Acts chapter 18, 
the Lord speaks to Paul in the, in the night by a vision and says, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Paul, we might suggest, was having that moment of fear and that moment of saying, maybe I've got too much of a hill to climb and I'm just going to go on my way. But he got a message from his commander-in-chief, our commander-in-chief, from Jesus, who says to him, you can do it. You'll have support, you'll have safety, and you'll have success. Where was this message about? What place? It's about Corinth. A city that almost missed out on the gospel because Paul wanted to walk away became a great place of Christians who could be an example to those they came in contact with. Because they could say, I've been there, I've done that, I've survived, and I've done things that are better now because of the Savior's work, which is salvation. As we conclude this lesson this morning, the same question comes to you. As you think about your life, maybe you've struggled with sin or are struggling with sin. You need to give your life to God and to Christ by submitting to him in baptism where you come in contact with the blood of Christ that washes away your sin and you can be added to the church and begin to live faithfully. There is nothing that is too tall, no mountain too tall, no hill too tall to climb. You can do it with the great physician, with the blood of Christ. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but as you have sort of maybe fallen back into sin and allow the sinful ways of this world to come back against you, you realize that you have separated yourself from God. We're thankful for this time to be together because there are many of us who can look around this room and say, such were some of you, but you have been washed, sanctified, and justified. And we're thankful this morning to sing this song that through its words we might encourage you to be washed, sanctified, justified, changed by the blood of Christ, to become a Christian or to come back to him, even now as we stand together and as we sing.